Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analysts Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen. Guys, good to see you as always. Hello, good Chris. to see you, Chris. We've got earnings from Whole Foods, Pfizer, Kellogg's, and more. We've got Ford Motor Company CEO Alan Mulally as our guest this week. Plus, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. Tuesday's midterm elections resulted in the GOP taking control of the House. On Wednesday, the Fed announced a move to buy $600 billion worth of bonds over the next eight months. And the stock market must have liked at least one of those two things, because on Thursday, the stock market hit a two-year high. James Early, what did you make of the news of this week? Well, Chris, someone's probably feeling stimulated by Ben Bernanke, but it's just <laughs> not me. Um, in fact, you know, this policy is basically making easy money easier, so it's making strong companies stronger. In other words, rich companies richer. The companies like Coca-Cola, like Microsoft, have already very low borrowing costs and, and lots of cash. They're able to, to stockpile even more. It's causing money to flood into the risky assets, but it's not necessarily stimulating uh, bread and butter staples purchases. And that's what we really need to do. We still have 14% of Americans on food stamps, according to the Wall Street Journal uh, just the other day, and that number is actually up. So the stimulus I would like to see is going to affect those people. Tim Hansen? Well, you know, <clears throat> there are a couple uh, points to this plan. The first is that the goal of it is to bring down interest rates to make it easier to borrow. I thought our problem in the first place was that we'd borrow too much in, at the say, beginning did, of this. Didn't we already you know, so do that? Details, details. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's one problem. And the second problem is, as, as James pointed out, um, you know, personally, I think this is this is a big bet. It's a Hail Mary. I saw it called a few times that in the press, which, you know, the good news about Hail Marys is they work sometimes. <laughs> Um, but this is, I really think that, that they're really risking the, the value of the currency here, which I think is a, a significant long-term uh, potential risk. That, but that's sort of the point, too, part of it. I mean, if the dollar gets weaker, everyone here, you know, because we're in America. We don't, we don't go anywhere. What do we care if the <laughs> dollar is, is weak against stuff that doesn't come from here? But on a more serious note, what, what Bernanke's trying to do is he's hoping that this is, this is kind of odd. It's like trickle-down economics, except the trickling isn't working very well. Companies, we were talking about it, I believe, in last week's show, have, have record amounts of cash, and they're not investing it. And uh, so... Whether this works or not, I think, uh, depends less on, on moving the interest uh, rates down a little bit by effectively lowering yields than, than on sort of collective psychology. One thing that worries me about it is that uh, we, we might have Greenspan, too. Did anybody read the Washington Post editorial that Monsieur Bernanke wrote? No. no. And that he actually writes, this I think is insane, <laughs> that... that, that that this is a good move and we already know it because in anticipation of the move, the stock market moved up. And when stocks go up, people feel like they have more money and then they go out and spend. So he's essentially saying at this point, hey, all I want is another little stock market bubble and that'll that'll right things. That'll get things just right. Yeah, but don't you think that's that crazy. if the stock market had gone down, that he would have just switched that line in the editorial and said, you well, know, we would, need this because the stock market's down. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> exactly. it's an idiotic remark. Uh, whether he's right or wrong, it's an idiotic remark. Don't James? you guys think Bernanke's starting to sound a little bit like Tim Geithner with a beard? I mean, he's just <laughs> maybe a little too weak for his, his role. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, the Fed, right, is supposed to be this apolitical body. And, and, and more and more, it seems like they're managing 
for the short term. Like they're coming under some political pressure. You know, we just got through an election season where everybody was doing everything they could over the past three months to sort of pull a stimulus out from somewhere to, to get voters to, to vote one way or the other. You know, and it seems like Bernanke's sort of going down that track. It's very short-term oriented thought. Well, President Obama is headed over to uh, Seoul, Korea for the G20 summit. Uh, Tim, you look at, you know, the, the global uh, investing community with global gains. I mean, what what does China think of this move? Well, everybody is sort of wary of this. And, and the reason is that um, it's become a race to the bottom in this, in this currency issue. It's just that when your currency is weak, uh, your goods sort of become cheaper for the rest of the world to consume. So here in the United States, if we get a weak currency, maybe our manufacturing sector picks up and, and jobs are created. But every country is thinking that way. Korea wants a weaker currency. Japan wants a weaker currency. China wants a weaker currency. India, so on and so forth. So it's really become a race to the bottom. And, and no one is thinking in a global context. They're all thinking about their individual countries, which in times of stress makes sense. But we're not going to get a solution to this as long as that keeps happening. Yeah, it's understandable. Understandable maybe makes less sense. Uh, let's go back to the midterms for a second. Uh, again, the Republicans are taking control of the House. Um, do you think the stock market, you know, reacted positively to that news? This feeling of okay, well, you know, there's going to be a change in leadership, and maybe uh, regulatory uh, controls are going to be different for making certain those industries? kinds of guesses is, is sort of a goofy headline game. But if you had, to, if you watched the action that day, stock market was down on the election news, or let's call it after the election news, and only went up at the end when Bernanke came on. So it would be the opposite uh, of, of excitement over Republicans if you believed that the stock market's action said anything, and I don't believe that. Well, and also, it's, I mean, it wasn't... Bernanke does. It wasn't an unexpected result. I mean, the, it had been predicted for a while. It was it was almost a fait accompli that the Republicans were going to take control All, all of this stuff is priced in uh, well in advance, Chris. That's absolutely right. And, and moreover, we still have a, you know, a, a mixed Congress, which means Republicans are not going to be able to, to steamroll anything uh, massive in. We may see uh, some rollback of the uh, some health care reform stuff that was not even rolled out in the first place, though, for some financial reform things that have been punted to, to smaller uh, uh, government agencies to make final decisions. But uh, to me, as a dividend investor, the thing that I hope for is, is that we don't see a big spike in dividend tax rates. You never will. We're going to have such a log jam. I, I hope, I very much hope that's right. I mean, previously, Obama wanted ordinary income, then it was 28%, then 20%. And now there's even talk of keeping it at 15%. And if we have that in parity with capital gains taxes, that won't disincentivize uh, dividend paying. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking about the big macro this week. One other big macro item, guys, on Friday, the jobs numbers uh, came out. Uh, the jobs report for October, employers added 151,000 jobs. That's the highest, uh, most since May. Uh, Seth, what do you think? I mean, What do you want, the good news or the, the meh? Eh, give me, give me some man. good news. Start you with the good. Me. I always want the good news. The good news is that if this is true, it's job growth exceeding population growth, sort of, which we don't get very much the past couple of years, maybe okay. even not so much the past decade. We're creating be, more babies than jobs? Is, is that, uh, is that we, the problem? We have That's what happens when you're out of work. For a while, it? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the way things work, I talked about collective psychology. Uh, you hope is that more people working equals more people spending equals, then you need to hire more people, more people working. You get this virtuous cycle. Why this is a meh is... Keep in mind, this is a survey. It's a, a very big survey, but it is still a survey. Don't get excited. Growth was generally in low, what I consider low quality employment, like retail, 
temporary workers, and as uh-huh. I've mentioned many times in the past, healthcare, probably the one spot we don't want to see a lot of extra spending. And these survey results are subject to major revisions in future months, sometimes, you know, uh, 50, 60, thousand jobs appear or disappear and completely change the direction of what we thought the original news said. So whether or not this is real is up for grabs. We got a lot of earnings news we'll get to in the next segment, but we should highlight a company that we've made fun of in the past, and that's Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks' latest quarter was big. Net profits up 86%. Seth Jason, the stock is at a 52-week high. You were mocking them just a couple of weeks ago. I never. I did not. Did I mock? Well, there was a little bit of mockery with the, with the whole thing where they're like uh, Howard Schultz. It's out pe- of character for pe- Seth to mock anything. <laughs> I don't think I mocked. Well, it was the whole thing with Howard Schultz, and he was saying that people, oh, the, the employees, got to slow down. Slow down. Stop making multiple drinks at once. Yeah, Just I actually stopped time. going to Starbucks because of that. The lines are, are terrible uh, by here. But I, I looked at this earnings report, and uh, it looks pretty good. But don't be too fooled by that eighty-five percent uh, increase in fourth quarter EPS because you're comparing last year to a quarter in which they had 50 some million dollars worth of restructuring charges. Now those are real charges so this is what you could, you know, this is a real gain from that quarter to this quarter. However, it's not a sustainable gain and so going forward you can't expect that kind of scale of improvement. But uh, it still looked pretty impressive. Comps were up uh, a, a good degree, and only a small part of that was price increases. So I, I think if you're a Starbucks shareholder, you have to be fairly happy. But this is not the old fast growth Starbucks. This is the more mature kind of dividend payer Starbucks. Tim Hanson? Well, there were. I mean, the, the results coming out of the international division, which has long been a laggard for the company, uh, where they've been putting up good revenue growth but haven't been able to produce any profits, they actually put up 20% sales growth out, out in the rest of the world and threw up a, uh, a, a about a 12 or 13% operating margin, which still lags their uh, U.S. profitability, but well ahead of the you know barely break-even they were doing uh, this time last year. So I think that's a sustainable improvement, which yeah. will be make Starbucks shareholders happy. And so is the the instant coffee, the Via. The, the Via is good, they're, they're, too. They're, popular, right? Yeah, they're selling a lot of that. that we that mocked could, that. I was just going to say, that. yet another really thing. We got some mileage out of that. Yeah, and uh, they, they may make an awful lot of money with that. I drank a lot of that Via when uh, we were in the hospital uh, w- w- with my wife when, we, when, when she was giving birth because the hospital coffee, terrible. <laughs> the Via coffee, far better. So... Thank you to Starbucks for that. And you should see the videos in the delivery room. <laughs> Tim is a blur. <laughs> it's yeah, all yeah. jittery. You can hear I, the I teeth, delivered the baby teeth myself. chattering in the background. Yeah. <laughs> all right, coming up, the midterm elections are over, and one business icon is already hinting at a presidential run in 2012. Stick around. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. You cash in nothing but trash. You cash in. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. For investing commentary and analysis 24-7, go to the Motley Fool's website, fool.com. Chris Hill here in the studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen as we dig into some more earnings news from the week. Whole Foods had blowout earnings this week, and the stock was up 15% on Thursday. Tim Hansen, how are they doing it? They're doing very well. Uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is a good lesson here for investors. And what it is is that good or great companies can return from sort of the brink of disaster. And, and Whole Foods struggled a few years ago uh, when the economy went down. People weren't buying premium-priced foods. They sort of tried to redo their brand a little bit to focus on some of the values they have in their store. They did the Wild Oats acquisition, which they struggled to integrate and also got them into trouble with the FTC. But 
with this report, they really look like they've emerged from that period of turmoil. Uh, their comps were incredible, 8%, 7% at stores that were more than 10 years old, which is an incredible number for stores of that age. And uh, they're really doing a nice job. They, they think they're getting traction with, A, the focus on value, which I can actually speak to first person. Um, I mentioned earlier that my wife recently had a baby. We've been eating a lot of takeout dinners, and we've discovered the green plate special at Whole Foods, which is the best deal going. You get a protein and two sides for like five bucks. It's unbelievable. Better than a better than a McDonald's wow. uh, value meal. Yeah. This is going on at the Whole deal. Foods down the street. Right down huh? the street, yeah. And uh, 15, 16 bucks at lunch there, the buffets. Well, it's so if you hit the uh, prepared food section, green I'm plate hit special. The prepared wow. food section. Yeah. It's really good. It's a great yeah. deal. And then uh, they also think they're getting some some traction with this sustainable seafood initiative they have where you go and they've got little red, green, and yellow lights on every food, depending on how sustainable it is. So apparently people are, are finding value at Whole Foods and they're still finding uh, some inspiration in the ethos. Would you buy a red light seafood? Ah, uh, it depends what it is. <laughs> the price is right. It sounds <laughs> like. Yeah. yeah, I think we're extinct make- but tasty. <laughs> I think we're making a field trip after today's show. All right, has Garmin lost its way? The GPS maker reported weaker than expected earnings and a- reported a 19% drop in its automotive revenues. Garmin also announced that it's leaving the smartphone business, which I found particularly interesting because I had no idea they were even in the smartphone business. Uh, (laughs) That's why they're leaving. Yeah, Seth Jason, a lot of smartphones have GPS navigation. Where where does that leave a company like Garmin? That's the problem, isn't it? Garmin's problem, the big problem is its number one product is being killed. You know the one, the personal navigation device for cars or what my mother calls that bitch on the dashboard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's about half of Garmin's current revenue. And it is not going to be for very long if it's dropping 20% a year. Smartphones are taking that business away. Uh, the cars come with in-dash uh, GPS more yep. and more often. And the prices on those, although it's still a kind of a, a big ripoff, it's less of a ripoff than it used to be. Uh, and so... Um, that's really their problem. Garmin's entry in the smartphone field went nowhere. It was a bigger joke than the kin. And so that only leaves Garmin with a that. few places <laughs> where it can actually get anything done. One of those places is outdoor and fitness GPS units, like the little watches that nerds like Tim and I might wear when we're out for our run. They've got a pretty good lead there, but that is not a whole lot of revenue. The other is marine and aviation, which is slow growth. There's a lot of competition. I really think in a few years, Garmin is going to just continue to dwindle and some private equity company will buy it just for those small pieces and that's it. I, if, if I were a stock buyer out there, I would get out of Garmin. Pfizer's third quarter profits were down 70% due to one-time charges and presumably to not selling more drugs. Uh, James Early, what did you make of Pfizer's quarter? Well, technically, Pfizer still beat analyst estimates despite yeah, some of these Wyeth uh, merger costs and, and ongoing asbestos litigation from, from a, you know, a subsidiary they bought a while back. But overall, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of chemical-based drug discovery as a general thing. I think the, the returns are, are diminishing. Uh, it's, it's harder and harder to find these billion-dollar drugs that way. The future is uh, through biotech and things like that, but, but these big companies are just going to have to buy that technology rather than generate it themselves. We touched on this a little bit uh, in the first segment. Uh, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, are they, are they looking forward to a Republican-led House of Representatives is that helpful to them to the pharma industry? You know, I don't. I don't know. It's. I don't see it as a material change. All right. They are if they are located in the district of a Republican or a Democrat, for that matter, because that's that's really how you get the bucks. Guys, there's a war on. 
Fortunately for us, it's a cereal price war. Unfortunately for Kellogg's, it's in the cereal business, and third quarter sales and profits were down. Uh, James Hurley, I believe you've had Kellogg's as your radar stock in the past. Uh, what did you make of the results? I, I actually have it as an income investor recommendation, Chris. Yeah, that the profits were 90 cents a share instead of 94 cents last year, so it did take a ding. Not massive. Kellogg's had some recall issues, partly with stinky, nauseating smells coming out of the plastic packaging uh, <laughs> versus the cereal themselves. Had some Eggo waffle production. This issues wakes as well. you up, right? Exactly. <laughs> wow. um, the cereal wars might be abating. I think General Mills is starting to, to raise prices, but it also shows you how much profit there is on uh, on these products. I mean, this is a high a higher margin business, you might think, and they, they can withstand this. These are strong companies overall. So short term, it's a bummer. Long term, I'm not worried. I have to think Captain Crunch would be pretty useful in a war. I mean, <laughs> he's a captain. The character? Yeah. Grape nuts, they're pretty hard. You throw them at people. I would take Tony the Tiger over Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch is tiny. You can hold him in your hand. Yeah, but I think he has a sword. We'll have to check the box. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the box. Plato. <laughs> Could you open your drawer? All right. Not an earnings story, but news this week for movie fans. MGM filed for bankruptcy on Wednesday after rejecting a takeover bid by Lionsgate Entertainment and billionaire Carl Icahn. MGM is the distributor of the James Bond movies, the Rocky movies, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, is James Bond out of a job now? Well, like, what's going on here? It's pretty interesting. Apparently, MGM is going to make the next Bond movie in, in the fall of 2011. They're going to own like 50% of it. But overall, This is the fall of 2011. Do you mean 2012? 20, 2012. Forget uh, that. Know, what about Frodo? Numbers. What about Frodo? Well, they're, they're trying for that too. But, but despite these successes, big movies in general can tend to be big duds. And, and, and MGM has a big library with 4,100 films and I think like 10,000 TV shows. But they need like new, fresh movies to, to bundle these old things with to, to sell them money and they haven't been able to do that so it's it's pretty interesting and, and they're ironically being run now by people who i don't think know too much about the movie business which might be a, a great thing actually it, you know if you look at the history of the movie business though that's just the way it is i was remarking before before the show that when i was watching omega man on netflix one time i was surprised it was warner brothers but it was owned at the time by a company that was a funeral home and parking lot conglomerate <laughs> That's the best kind of the movie business. You is gotta not have always say you need some sort of profitable business to prop up all that money losing uh, Hollywood mumbo jumbo. As we mentioned, the 2012 presidential campaign has already begun, and one business icon went public with the news that he is quote seriously considering a presidential run in 2012. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump. How excited are we for a potential Donald Trump presidential run? I'm excited for the potential <laughs> of Donald Trump being on camera more than he already is. I was um, going to say, he might be more willing to be a guest on our show. Yeah. Uh. It's too bad that he's such an unsuccessful yeah. businessman, except in, in his own press. Look, success has not ever gotten in the way of Donald's candidacy. <laughs> <laughs> he's simultaneously like a big success and a big failure. It's hard to, it's kind of hard to reconcile. I think he would cost us some credibility on the world stage, but who's counting? I mean, he's got, he's got a, a, certainly a well-known brand, but yeah, he has, he has taken uh, several of his own companies right into the ground. You know what? If Donald will sh will just go with the shaved head, and get rid of that that you weird wig or whatever he's got, I'll vote for him. You're saying that hair's not real? I've seen him lift it up. He's he's shown that it's, it looks convincing. All right, the guys will be back later in the show to talk about the stocks on their radar. Up next, Ford Motor Company CEO Alan Mulally will be our guest, and only one business show in the world has the guts to ask him what Americans really want to know: When are we getting flying cars? Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. 
Last year, Time magazine named Alan Mulally as one of the most influential people in the world. For the last four years, he's been the president and CEO of Ford Motor Company, and he joins me now. Alan, thanks for being here. Well, glad to be with you, Chris. Ford just posted record third quarter earnings, and you've said the key drivers going into 2011 will be increasing quality, an improving competitive position, and a gradually improving economy. Now, you have control over the first two, but not the third one. So my question is, how does Ford string together a few more quarters like this last one if the economy basically stays where it is? Well, Chris, it's, uh, it's a really important part uh, of our plan because, as, as uh, you well know, uh, four years ago, uh, we made some pretty big uh, strategic decisions which would allow us to profitably grow Ford, not only through uh, the worst recession that we've all seen, but uh, clearly to improve that performance as the economy started to strengthen. And so, uh, you know, everybody had a chance to see with our third quarter uh, results that even at this, uh, you know, lowest industry that we've had in, in nearly 40 years that uh, we are able to uh, operate profitably based on the strength uh, of the fabulous new Ford product line and, as you point out, our ever-increasing quality uh, and productivity. So right now our best uh, estimate is that that the U.S. economy will uh, expand uh, maybe a little bit less than 3% for uh, the year 2010. And we anticipate that. And I think we're pretty much aligned with most of the economists that will be you know, somewhere around a 3% expansion in uh, 2011. So, you know, Ford's well-positioned. We took the tough uh, structural actions, operate profitably at this lower demand. We invested in the new products, and now uh, the customers have the products that they really do want and value available uh, from Ford as we recover. I want to read you a headline from Wednesday's Wall Street Journal, and the headline is, GM could be free of taxes for years. And the article goes on to talk about how GM won't have to pay as much as $45 billion in taxes on future profits because of special tax rules made to specifically benefit government bailout recipients. Now, unlike GM, Ford didn't accept government money. Right. Ford is profitable, just posted record earnings. So how do you compete with a company that's backed by Uncle Sam? Well, we knew uh, that uh, we were going to a different. We were following a different strategy. And remember, Chris, we actually uh, during the the uh, the time when GM uh, shared with everybody that they were completely bankrupt and they were going to go into bankruptcy. That we actually testified on behalf of GM and Chrysler uh, for the good of the industry and also to help prevent um, a collapse of the industry, which could have, which many people believe could have taken the. Uh, the U.S. from a recession into a depression. So, you know, we supported that temporary help uh, from the government. Clearly, uh, we have been on a completely different plan for the last four years, and we did we uh, did not want or need to take uh, precious taxpayer money. And also, we were also investing during the worst time in our new products. Now, clearly, uh, we were disadvantaged uh, in the near term on the debt because that was essentially uh, wiped out as they went through bankruptcy. But our plan always was get back to profitability, generate free cash, and then accelerate the improvement of our balance sheet. And one neat thing, Chris, about the third quarter was that we shared the progress we were making on that. And with our commitment to pay the $3.6 billion in the in the VIBA on the retiree health care, we moved that uh, and honor that commitment. We have now, for the year, uh, repaid uh, $10.8 billion of our debt. And we also gave guidance, uh, Chris, that we're going to be uh, cash um, uh, net positive 
by the end of the year, which means that we'll have improved that net cash position by nearly eight to uh, to nine billion dollars for the year. So, the most important thing we do is just is continue to make the cars and trucks that people want, improve our quality and our productivity, like we're doing, and then accelerate the improvement in our balance sheet, and uh, we'll be just fine. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Alan Mulally, the president and CEO of Ford Motor Company. Ford's making a big push into the electric vehicle and, and plug-in hybrid market. Uh, is there a point where you think that will make up a majority of your product line? And if so, when do you think that is? Well, I think, Chris, it's going to be a while before it's a, sub- a substantial part of the product line because uh, clearly, uh, you know, Ford has a very, very a robust uh, technology roadmap going forward to not only improve uh, the quality and the fuel efficiency and the safety, but also uh, provide that across all of our, our vehicles. And the technology roadmap that we see is a, there's a lot of room to improve the internal combustion engine. And you, and you see that with EcoBoost, with turbocharging and direct fuel injection, you know, nearly 25% improvement in fuel efficiency and, re, and 15% reduction in CO2, new lightweight materials, integrated electronics, uh, aerodynamics. Then we see gradual um, electrification of the vehicles, and the first major push will be the hybrids, where you have uh, an internal combustion engine and an electric uh, motor. Then you'll see more plug-ins, and then you'll see gradually more all-electric vehicles. Now, the rate of that expansion will be really dependent on the improvements that we make in the battery technology uh, and the electrical components, because we need to get the weight down, the scale up, the cost down, the capability to charge in, in warm and hot temperatures and do it quickly. And of course, Chris, the other enabler will be the infrastructure uh, throughout the United States and a smart electrical grid so that we can actually uh, you know, charge the vehicles conveniently. So I think that public-private partnership is going to be a very big piece, but the most important thing is that we uh, keep developing enabling technology to make them technically and economically viable. So if I'm reading between the lines, it sounds like you're saying five years. I, oh, at least, Chris, because, <laughs> you know, at least, because you think about the infrastructure that we have in uh, for gasoline today is tremendous, which makes it all work for all of us. And whatever we do, it's got to be economically uh, attractive, but also it has to work for, for our lives. And the infrastructure is just not there now to be able to support uh, the vehicles. Plus, the vehicle's got to be economic uh, so that, because if the consumers, we're all going to make an economic decision and we all care about fuel efficiency, and we care about quality, and but we also care about the economics that that uh, that go with that. So the most important thing we do is to keep improving the technology, and then work with the with the public sector and the and the and the utility companies to get the infrastructure in place. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Alan Mulally, the president and CEO of Ford Motor Company. Alan, what was the first car you ever owned? I think I had um, a Chevrolet before I moved to Ford. Is there anything in particular that you remember about it? Was it was, uh, and it can be anything. It can be the color. It could be. I think. Uh, I think it had uh, my first Ford had uh, uh, moon hubcaps and black rims that offset the cream colored body. And I just remember how neat it was when when I got my driver's license and the highways were open to me to move about freely. And you you just took off. I'm guessing. <laughs> Absolutely. Like all of us. You know, Chris, a neat thing about uh, Ford and Henry Ford was his original vision, which we are accelerating today, is to open the highways to all mankind so that all of us uh, 
can move and feel the freedom uh, that the automobile brings and also have great, safe, and efficient transportation, plus have great careers uh, with Ford wherever we operate around the world. So, you know, it's a it's a, just an honor to be accelerating the, the uh, uh, implementation of Henry Ford's original vision. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Alan Mullally, the CEO and president of Ford Motor Company. Alan, before we let you go, we have to wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. So let's start with something that uh, certainly has its fans as well as its detractors. Buy, sell, or hold the future of ethanol. Well, I would uh, say... Uh, um, I'd say a buy because I think that uh, clearly we're going to have uh, uh, many elements of the solution to energy independence and security. And uh, I think that the ethanol we have today is, is, a, is a start. I think we're going to see more biomass uh, fuels uh, going forward, and they'll be part of the, of the solution. Google has developed one that has logged over 140,000 miles on the road. Buy, sell, or hold the driverless car. I think I would probably hold on that because <laughs> I think that people just really, really enjoy that driving experience, and there is nothing that can replace uh, the ability of the human being to, to assimilate all the different situations we're going to be in and be able to react accordingly and, and Chris, enjoy it. See, I thought you were going to say you were going to hold on it because it's just kind of creepy. <laughs> well... You know, uh, I've uh, worked on automatic systems uh, for my life, as you know it, with commercial airplanes and automatic landing systems and, and autopilots and autothrottles. And, uh, and when it comes to the car and with an airplane, the most important thing is that, that the driver or the pilot is completely in charge because the, the human's ability to simulate uh, all the different uh, situations that uh, we can get into is absolutely amazing. The best thing we can do, just like we're doing in the automobile industry, is to give the drivers all the situational information that they need and the alerts that they need and then let the human being do what they do best, and that is focus on driving and using their uh, the human being's ability to react. We don't hear quite as much talk about it these days. Buy, sell, or hold a manned trip to Mars in the next 20 years. I probably would sell on that. Um, that's uh, That might be some... Uh, that might happen someday in the future, but I think we have, uh, I think that's a ways out. And finally, you're a top executive at an aerospace company. You're the CEO of an automotive company. So I think more so than probably anyone else in the public markets, you are the most qualified to weigh in on this topic. Oh my, speak slowly, Chris. I'm, I'm getting ready. Buy, sell, or hold. By the end of this century, flying cars. I, well, clearly, uh, we have made flying cars. I think the, the real question is, is uh, will it be widespread and economically viable? And I, I sure don't think so. Because the, the economics of commercial airplanes to be able to deliver uh, a large number of people around the world uh, is so compelling. And to do that in a in a small, uh, you know, two or three or four passenger, just really doesn't make sense economically. Not even with 90 years lead time? <laughs> well, you know, I have been working on the future, but maybe that's a little <laughs> too far out. He is the president and CEO of Ford Motor Company. Alan Mulally, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, and thanks for covering the Ford story. Meet George Jetson. Coming up, big movers, reverse stock splits, and a few stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. And how many times have you heard it said 
A fool and his money will part. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me to talk about one of the week's big movers is Motley Fool Managing Editor Brian Richards. Brian, welcome. Chris, thanks for having me. So the big mover we're going to talk about this week is Mankind. It's a biotech company uh, focuses on products for diabetes and cancers. On Thursday, shares fell 18% after details of a lawsuit came out, uh, a lawsuit from a former executive. Yeah, uh, a former regulatory affairs director said he was fired for raising concerns about some overseas clinical trials for the company's signature drug, which is an inhaled insulin product. And for its part, the company says the guy was fired for an unrelated reason and that uh, it investigated his claims and found no problem with the data from those foreign trials. Now, uh, Mankind is uh, was started by Alfred Mann. He's got a huge stake in the company, almost 40%. And inside ownership, we like to see that at The Motley Fool. Um, but the the lawsuit's just hanging over it. Yeah, and, and Alfred Mann lost a lot of money on Thursday yeah. <laughs> with his big stake. Um, but Mankind was already a risky stock before Thursday. Uh, it's a biotech company, so you know, often in, in biotech investing, it's a, there's a binary outcome. The company will get approval for its drug or it will not get approval for its drug. And the shares will go up a lot or they will go down a lot. Um, and, and this is just another reminder of the risk of investing in biotech stocks. So now it's got the lawsuit and the pending FDA approval because this drug isn't on the market yet. Right. And, uh, you know, so normally there's one big variable for biotechs, and that's uh, FDA approval. Now we've added another big variable, which is the, the outcome of this lawsuit. So, you know, for, for investors who are interested in beating down companies or in, interested in biotech investing in general, uh, you know, we would say tread cautiously. All right, Brian, thanks for joining us. To read more, you can click over to fool.com to read Is Mankind a Bad News Buy? You can also read about some of the other big movers in the stock market. Go to fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me are trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hanson. All right, guys, time to wrap up with the stocks on our radar this week, and we will we will bring our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, into the mix. How are you, Steve? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. All right. Well, S- Steve's going to hit you with a wild card question, so I, I hope you're more. I didn't pre- sign up for that. Uh, sorry, <laughs> you have to be extra prepared this week. It's not week. on my contract either. <laughs> you have a contract? <laughs> All right, Tim Hanson, we'll start with you. What's your stock? Well, I think uh, a couple weeks ago I talked about T. Rowe Price in this forum and the thesis that the next decade for stocks is going to be a lot better than the last decade. So I've got another. I'm, I'm back. God, with, I hope so. I'm back with a stock <laughs> this week to play that same uh, trend. It's called Virtus Investments. It's on the Nasdaq VRTS. It's a recent spinoff from an uh, insurance company. They have about $25 billion in assets under management, which is a huge amount of assets under management. But they've struggled historically with profitability because of this tie-up with the insurance company. They are now uh, sort of streamlining their operations. They expect to get more profitable over the next year or two. Uh, They're hoping to get to 25%, which would still be below the operating margin for the industry average. And if they get there, it would suggest a fair value for the stock somewhere between about $45 and $70 per share. And it's currently at 38. So Virtus. Steve, what do you got for Tim? So what exactly do they do again? <laughs> They're the ones who lose <laughs> money for you and your mutual fund. Okay, good, good. Yeah. I, I, I'm having a hard time following exactly what they do, but it, it sounds like a good call other than that. They are, they are asset managers, so when you uh, contribute to your mutual fund, they're the ones who manage the money for you. 
James Hurley. Chris, I would love to hear what Steve thinks of incumbent telecoms outside the U.S. An example would be Philippine Long Distance, which is a, a recommendation in my newsletter. These companies typically have nice margins and, and good market share, but the governments are, are trying to encourage competition uh, by, by facilitating these upstarts to, that are taking some of that share. But there's still a lot of people in these countries who, who don't have any phone connectivity at all. So it's kind of a, a tug of war between the competition and then sort of the untapped portion of the market. So I'm just kind of stewing on these companies. Steve? What, what about, we were recently in Jamaica and noticed uh, a similar kind of trend where there seemed to be a local uh, cell provider that seemed just enormous. Do you think in countries like the Philippines that there'll be increased connectivity? Uh, I'm assuming with internet and all that, that, that that may, you know, voice over IP, that kind of technology might affect what your, your company does? Well, yes. A lot of these companies are capitalizing on that, which is, which is good, typically, uh, primarily good for the incumbent. Um, it's just very hard to predict the adoption rates of that. And there are people who, who don't even have cell phones, and, and, and prepaid cell phone is, is the norm in these countries, too. All right, Seth Jason. I have, uh, wow, just as boring as you can get, AMN Healthcare, which is a, uh, a healthcare service, actually the biggest healthcare service uh, uh, company. They provide staffing okay. to, so the biggest healthcare service staffing company in the country. Kind of smacked down this week on results. Uh, they had some goodwill write-downs, which are non-cash losses. Uh, the non-cash now, it means they wasted the cash back when they made the acquisition back in the day. But I think that going forward, uh, the thesis I have here is that we are going to need more and more nurses and other healthcare staff. And as the economy improves and hospitals and others start staffing up to meet the demand that will be there, that AMN is in a very good position to profit from this. And so long as it's been pounded as it has been lately, it's probably the time to consider buying it, if ever. And the ticker is AHS. Steve? Um, with the uh, Republicans now controlling the House, uh, how will health care reform be, uh, you know, affect what you're talking about, especially if health care reform gets rolled back, which some people are predicting? My opinion on that is that it doesn't matter what anybody says about health care reform. Here's, here's the reality. Everybody wants as much health care as they can get and they don't want to pay for it. And unfortunately, politicians all tend to give that to them no matter what their party. So I, I don't really think that has much of an effect on this business. Yeah, I was going to say, well, the, the need for nurses isn't going anywhere. America is still Especially getting older. Nurses. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to matter who's going to pay for it, which is the health care reform question. But the need, I think, for what you're talking about is, is irrelevant in politics. By the way, Seth, you used the phrase "goodwill write downs." That that seems like something. So that when you, when that, you, when that you, seems like something a company yeah. would say, like, "Hey, stock market, don't don't it's punish no us. Deal. Don't punish us too much. <laughs> These are goodwill write downs." When you buy a company, say I buy Chris's uh, burrito factory, yes. and I pay you a hundred million dollars for it, but sold. But but your company only has like one building worth ten million, and then equipment worth five million. Everything else that I pay you on top of that, okay is sort of, it's intangible stuff. So it's it's goodwill and or intangible like, assets. Like the recipes to make your burritos, yeah, that and, sort of and thing. And the goodwill you have, the relationships with your customers. Now, if later on I find out that your company is not as profitable as I thought, then by accounting regulation, I'm required to go back and impair the goodwill, which is basically to go to the balance sheet and say, this stuff is only worth half of what we thought. And at that point, it's a loss on the income statement, but the cash went out the door when you bought the company. It's very, very fuzzy. That's the yeah. key. Hey, you know what? I'm taking the 100 million the 100 you mil? gave me, <laughs> and I'm going to Vegas. All right, Seth Jason, James Early, Tim Hansen. Guys, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to our special guest this week, Ford CEO Alan Mulally and Brian Richards, managing editor of Fool.com. For the latest analysis and investing commentary each day throughout the week, go to Fool.com. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 